Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. We are joined by two members of Hub New Music, and we are going to be talking with Mike and Meg today, who are in two different places. Uh, and we're very thrilled to uh, chat with you, but I'll let you introduce yourselves. And so you can tell us what instrument you play uh, and where you're joining us from on the call. And uh, we can start to listen to some music and chat. Hi, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm the flute player of Hub New Music. I'm calling in from my home in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, Happy New Year. Hello, my name is Meg. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm calling in from Detroit, Michigan, where I live, and I play violin and sometimes viola with Hub. Occasional violas. That's the... That's what every violinist loves to to, to say. Um, So tell us a bit about uh, how the group started, where where you kind of found each other, and and maybe where uh, things began for you uh, playing together. Did you you play in other iterations before Hub together, or is this kind of the first meeting for you both? Uh, Well, Hub started as a school project. a little over 10 years ago now. It's very weird to say it's over 10 years now. Um, at the New England Conservatory in Boston, where I went to grad school. Um, and Hub had started out as kind of a more um, free-flowing collective of friends who I could gather who were played anything, who were down to play some new music across Boston. We played in churches and art galleries and anywhere that would have us for a show. And um, as we were doing programming, a lot of these spaces that we were playing and didn't have luxuries like pianos or percussion equipment or anything that we get used to in a regular concert hall. And so it was very DIY and um, being the flute player, I didn't want to just only program like string quartets or string trios. So I'm frantically researching on on the Google machine pieces of new music that also included the flute that had no piano or percussion. And so in that whole research process, stumbled on a lot of repertoire for flute, clarinet, violin, and cello that was commissioned by a group called the Seattle Chamber Players. Um, And there were a bunch of really terrific pieces. And so that set the group kind of on this path of being that particular instrumentation. And the, the benefit of that was that for a group that was not a standard instrumentation and is not a standard instrumentation, we actually didn't have to commission everything we played from the get-go. We actually had this almost kind of working body of repertoire that we as students could treat as our kind of, quote, standard rep. So the pieces that we found became like our Beethoven quartet or our Schubert trio, and we learned them, you know, in that kind of very pedagogical fashion. Um, and then fast forward, Meg, is it eight years now? I mean, when two years ago you joined, yeah. right? Yeah, so eight years later, yeah. So fast forward eight years, um, we had an opening in for our violin position, and I had called upon various friends in Michigan, and they all said, unrelated to one another, said, you have to call Meg Rohr, and I did, and it was a very, very, very good idea. Um, and I'll let Meg talk about how they joined the group. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I had known about Hub um, because when I was in, I was still a grad student. Um, yeah. Hub came through University of Michigan where I was studying and did a mentorship program. 
And so one of my ensembles actually got to have a coaching with Hub and I thought they were so cool. And then um, I got this email and I was like, I get to play a trial with Hub New Music. That's awesome. And it just kind of felt really great immediately um, when we when we first played together. There was some chemistry. So, yeah, that's how it happened. Fantastic. The really fun thing is that the first piece that Meg played with us by our friend Takumi Ito, yeah. we just released the recording of it um, like a few months ago. So that was a really cool kind of lovely full circle moment. That's very cool. When you were at NEC, was there the Queer Student Union? Did that exist at that point? Or was is that two before? I think it was probably two before. Either that or I was completely unaware. I was admittedly never <laughs> at school, so I'm not the person to ask about the bustling activities at NEC. <laughs> the only reason I ask is because one of the very first people that we interviewed now a couple of years ago um, was really involved with the NEC Christian Union. It always was like a really fascinating uh, entity that existed uh, at NEC, and so I was just curious if you had been involved, but I also understand not being too much at school, because I was also not too much at the school during my grad work. I probably can't even find it on a map at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I was there so little. (laughs) So, anyway. (laughs) And Meg, uh, when you were at uh, Michigan, um, talk to me about how you ended up there. Was it... uh, proximity? Were you there? Was it for a teacher? How did you kind of end up in that that program? Yeah, it was totally for a teacher for me. I um, was, you know, considering where to do my master's and had an amazing transformative meeting with um, Danielle Belen, who I studied with at Michigan. Um, and I kind of knew, like, I should go here. And it was very cool because um, that was my in to Michigan. But as soon as I got there, there was also this really creative spirit that was just like around the whole school that I really vibed with. And um, so much new music happening and creative music and improvisation and people kind of, you know, blending things together and um, really focusing on new compositions in a way that was like perfect with what I wanted to do and you know definitely led me down my path towards wanting to do new music full-time so I feel like it was a little bit serendipitous where I didn't know that's what I was going there for but looking back it seems like well thank goodness um that's a community that was able to nurture that a lot I think that's such a like tale is all this time new music entry story I mean I remember I, I am also like a new music clarinetist and live almost exclusively in that world but I remember loathing new music when I was in like undergrad. I remember going to concerts and thinking, this is utter shit. I think this is uh, just listening to my first uh, Cage pieces and thinking, this is such a waste of time. But now I can't imagine uh, not being in that space and not like deeply loving uh, new music. But it's it's funny how everybody kind of arrives at it. You're right. It's It's a very interesting trajectory, maybe. Totally. So- so I mean, I'd like to ask a little bit about how you uh, work together. The four of you, <clears throat> excuse me, work together and decide on kind of your program and what music you're going to take on. Because I'm sure you're, I, I know you're all very creative people and I'm sure you have different creativities. And, and I just, you know, want to get the dynamic of how you work together to, to develop where you're going and to, and to, and to develop a piece. 
Yeah, so for programming, um, every... I'm just going to ask Meg to confirm all the details because... <laughs> is it... Meg, do we usually do it in, like, August, right? So in, like, late yeah. summer, usually August, we have the meeting, which is, at that point, we have a pretty good idea about what our calendar is going to look like for the coming season. And there's a Google Doc. Uh, to answer your question, in short, everything is a Google Doc. <laughs> everything, that is how everything operates. I was more, um, more interested about how you decide creativity and, and how you creatively decide what your program's going to be. So Right. And so um, we have the list of all the concerts that are going to happen for the season. And we kind of know if there are some concerts where we have to play a particular piece or if we have a commission coming up or if there's, um, uh, you know, someone commissioned a piece and we have to play it on this particular series. And then everybody kind of contributes other repertoire that they want to see happen for the year. There's a big list. And then we just go through tour by tour, concert by concert and say um, what we want to play. And um, we're usually like pretty in agreement about it we rarely have like any kind of like conflicting views of like i really want to do this or i don't really want to do this and and often I, what i like about that process is that we often are really good at kind of acquiescing to others requests because you know if there's some a piece that someone really really wants to play then like we have this space and this job where we have so much programming control and you know i, I like that we enjoy that um but yeah so it, the meeting is usually like four hours there's a lot of various hot beverages that are consumed across that time and um it's good fun <laughs> yeah it does feel a little bit like a puzzle like um i like thinking about the the old saying about like you know more more parameters sometimes helps with creativity right so for us there's all these very specific concerts that need certain things already um or have a certain amount of time to fill or it's like okay well we just came from this other concert and it will be fresh in our fingers so it's kind of it feels like this large puzzle of like programming feels like a puzzle of putting together things that make sense and also things that the presenters request and also things that we want to add and it all kind of goes together um and i also just want to add that when we're like a lot of the things that are requested is you know because it's a newer piece um and it's a commission and so just going back even farther like when we're deciding who to commission we have also kind of a similar like brainstorming session every so often and mike is is definitely like the one who communicates with everyone so he, he's kind of like the one who grounds us in reality a little bit but we're all allowed to dream for sure about like okay like you know what who do we imagine or daydream about working with and then like which ones of these would maybe be practical to try and accomplish so um yeah and how much do you kind of engineer that conversation and maybe that's a good question for mike as in like i have a very similar uh relationship with a, a group here that we kind of plan a year's worth of programming uh also like in August, and we have uh, composers that we want to work with and pieces that we are, want to draw on. But we also, we have a, a really strong bent towards, we want uh, like emerging East Coast Canadian composers. We definitely want representation from queer people. We definitely want black Nova Scotian composers. 
we want like a really specific group. How much do you like play with that in your programming or is it really truly um, piece first and then because the pieces you probably want to play are also likely by people that you want to represent as well, that it just kind of happens naturally or are you actually kind of like massaging that a bit? It's something I think about a lot um, in as as running an organization and working with people who are doing a lot of commissioning work. Um, I think that the philosophy that I've tried to bring to that work is I think it's important as a commissioner, as a programmer, as any kind of like artistic directorship kind of role is to know as much about your field as humanly possible and to know everything that's going on. And so I think it's important to keep tabs on who is winning the various prizes every year, especially the emerging composers ones, and who is, what is this other other five groups you know of? Who are they programming? And I think just keeping tabs and having a really global perspective on what's going on um, in your field. And I think if you're doing that right, then hopefully that pool of people that you are kind of broadly assessing is more diverse and is more inclusive of queer voices, of people of color, of people from different aesthetics and schools and socioeconomic economic backgrounds. I think what, I, what I've tried to avoid in at least our programming is to specifically look at, like, we want this kind of person for our program because I think that that can tow a bit of a, a dangerous line into the world of, of, of tokenism. And I think that's something that, that scares me about programming. And so that said, if we have a list of programs and a list of concerts and like it's the programs are all leaning a particular way, then I think it's important to have a certain amount of self-awareness and say, okay, well, we're lacking in this particular world of representation what can we do how can we go back to the drawing board and above all else that we have to want the composer there we have to want the piece the piece has to work because i think that there's a certain amount of artistic respect from that of anyone who's programmed or anyone who we commission anyone who is part of our kind of like hub universe we want that person to know that they are there because we value their voice as an artist as a composer as a musician um and not because they're filling a requirement for us, because I find that to be kind of performative. And at the end of the day, I don't think that serves anybody but the programmer. And it doesn't serve the audience. It doesn't serve the community you're trying to help. I think when it's done authentically and earnestly, and which is the hard way of doing it, I really think that's the only way to do that authentically. Sorry, that's my long-winded answer of saying... <laughs> read a lot, listen to a lot of music and make decisions based on a very global perspective. <laughs> and who yeah, are and then, your audiences? Oh, sorry, Mike, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but we also don't like give the composers a much of a prompt for the piece, right? We kind of want them to just take our instrumentation and do what naturally they would write. Um, yeah. There's a lot of trust involved once we decide to commission someone as well. Yeah, and so I think the, the philosophy that we generally take is that whatever inspires the composer is what inspires us. Like, we're not going to be the group that's going to come in and say, you have to write a 20-minute piece about maple trees, and it has to be in five movements, and each of the movements has to be about your different tree that you love. That's also a maple tree. It's, um, I mean, sometimes there are, there are definitely timing parameters that come into play of like, we're really looking to commission a 15 minute work or an eight minute work or a 30 minute work. Um, and a lot of that is 
also in conversation with the composer about like what they have the capacity to write and the piece that they want to write for us. But in terms of content, um, it's mostly up to the composer. Yeah, because I find that that just gives, if they're excited, we're excited. It's usually at the end of the day how it works. How do you um, work with the composer? I mean, it sounds like from what you said, you just go and say, okay, write us a piece. And lo and behold, if you, some period of time later, they come back with something. I'm not sure it's like that. But but so how, how what's your actual interaction and how you uh, then deal with what the composer is trying to get over to, to the audience and how you work with that? Maybe, Meg, you want to start with that one this time? Sure, yeah. Um, well, it varies so much. Different composers all have their different processes, but something we do try to always have as part of the process is a little bit of workshopping. Um, some ways before we would actually premiere the, the piece, which is very helpful um, because even if it's just a few ideas and it changes radically between the workshop and the concert, or if it's you know basically a fully written piece at the workshop and it's only tweaked a little bit, um, it gives us so much insight when we have that back and forth with the composer like with still some time to digest the work um because when we actually communicate with them about it whether that's sending recordings back and forth or actually meeting in person we get so much more from them um about what they've written and what the you know larger concepts are or what's the most important thing about the work um or about the notation or like it's just always so clarifying um, for us, and and it goes both ways too, where we will almost always have questions or thoughts or requests or um, you know confusions or any number of things that we want to ask about, and you know maybe either just dive in together or change or something. And so um, both of those things are so 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 helpful to do um, with the composer, like during the process when the piece is still kind of like not fully formed yet. Um, but yeah, it does vary a lot composer to composer, like how much they give us and how, how deep that back and forth goes. Um, so it's been really interesting to kind of see a people's different styles, um, of, of that and how their ideas grow at different paces or in different orders or something like that. Like we, one time we just got this page of like a, a few bars that were like not related and we just like, they were like I really want to hear just like play this and then just play this and then play this. I just need to hear what these sound like and then we were like okay and we sent it back and like it was like a month later or something we got this whole like amazing piece that was this is um I'm talking about James Diaz lines of acid dreams it was this amazing piece by James Diaz that was just like somehow a combination of all those textures that we had tried that at the time we had no idea how they were going to be related. Um, but it just blossomed into this amazing thing that was all connected. So oh, yeah, it really varies. And on the other end of that, we just did um, a really extensive workshop for a piece that by Donica Dennehy that we commissioned for our 10th anniversary. And that was a fully fleshed out, very rehearsable score. Um, and you would think that in that context, you would just, because it was so kind of complete that we would come in, we would read down sections. He'd be like, okay, do this faster, do this slower. And it'd be almost more like a rehearsal than a workshop. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it was so surprising to me after that, like, I think Meg, we had like a three hour session with Donica. Yeah. 
and we we picked so many things apart and tried this and tried this and swapped this technique out in for this and now let's redeem this or take this part out and so it's always amazing to me that and how valuable the workshops are because no matter kind of what the stage of kind of completion whatever we get is there's always so much that kind of changes and gets um well workshopped uh, between then and the final score delivery so so for 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 those people who are listening and and include myself in this who are not are not musicians um how much when you come to play the piece here how much and you've obviously got a composer who's written something they've written what they want the piece to say how much input do you feel you have into how that piece is you what you play is is put into that piece how much of you is in that piece do you think it so depends on the piece i mean there are are we are you thinking about meg are you thinking about the usc question <laughs> yes i was literally gonna say 50%, like, as a joke but um <laughs> there's a joke there so we were um <laughs> Well, I guess we're speaking freely. <laughs> so we had this residency at the University of um, Southern California, which was lovely. And the students were terrific. And I, they're just only good experiences there. Um, and we're in this, this um, kind of Q&A session. And one of the students um, very bravely asks, <laughs> how much of a score do you change, or when you make a change to a score, how often do you tell the composer? <laughs> and then it felt, it felt a bit of it like the four of us were kind of caught red-handed. We all looked at each <laughs> other kind of nervously about how we are going to answer this question. And we came to the conclusion that we tell the composer half the time <laughs> if we make a change. Um, it's a little bit of a game to see if they notice. But... Um, the, the more serious answer is, um, I feel like the what draws me personally to this this particular area of work as a musician is that so much of us gets imbued into what we play. And so, you know, when we get a score, it doesn't, for me, ever feel like it's a piece for flute, clarinet, violin, and cello. It feels like it's a piece written for the four of us because it's what it is. And when that person... Um, is writing that piece they were also kind of getting to know us as musicians either through workshopping or listening to our recordings or looking at our other pieces our history of work that we've done and so that kind of research and that experience that they have of getting to know us you know whether we've said that bar 14 needs to be taken up an octave or this needs to be shifted here i feel like that is kind of in their conscious their consciousness and i feel like the best pieces feel that way that they know that they're writing for a particular group of, of people. And so, you know, there's the the stuff that we change, which is quite literally like this measure was authored by Mike. Um, and then there's, but in a, in a grander, more, again, like global perspective, um, so much of it feels like it's imbued with us because it's for us. Um, mm. It's almost like, a, you know, it's a gift in a way. Yeah. And I think especially since the nature of what we do is touring these pieces over and over again, the repetition of that and sharing the same piece with many very different audiences also makes it feel more and more like ours. And mm -hmm. that's something that's been really nice. So not it's not, it's not like every piece 
we play that many times. It, some some would be fewer times than others, um, or some we play, you know, hundreds of times. And um, I think it's interesting to notice how that also affects which ones feel the most authentic mm -hmm. and the most like we can just express freely through through this vessel that's been given to us. So I, I guess. I, sorry, go on, Jacob. Well, I was just going to, I was going to connect it to the piece that we want to listen to today. What if we were beautiful? I wonder, you know, how, how, how much have you played this one? First of all, did you workshop this piece? Uh, what was the process like to, to create this, um, this, this recording? Uh, and then, so how much of that is true for this one that we're going to listen to? Yeah, we've played this piece quite a bit. Um, we got it in March, so it's going on one year old. Um, or we, we pre premiered it in March rather. We've had it for over a year, but yeah, we workshopped the piece with um, the composer Daniel Thomas Davis um, shortly before the premiere. And it was, you know, a very fruitful back and forth of like, here's what this sounds like. Oh, now that I've heard this, I actually want to adjust the balance here or the texture or, you know, like, you know, what's the most effective way to do this, you know, and, and really kind of tweaking it and fine tuning it. And then, yeah, we've played it a lot since then. I think we've, it's a pretty long piece. It's, um, is it 18 minutes? Is that right? Yeah. Um, and so there's been many a program where that's kind of like the centerpiece at the end um, since March. And I feel, I feel like we're all pretty connected to it at this point. Um, we love this one and we also love the message behind it and the like queer affirmation of it and I think that it's, it's one that has sunk in a few layers deeper for us. And we're getting ready to record it in May. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of that, the process that I think really cements the, um, how much it feels like ours is that almost kind of that kind of um, final step and what I kind of see as the life cycle or the artistic process for us is that we reach out to the composer, we brainstorm ideas, we do the commission, we workshop the piece, we premiere it, we tour it. And then I think after we've lived with something for a while and have really had it in our being, um, we go to the studio and we and we lay it down. And um, that's not to say that we don't ever play a piece after it's been recorded, but I, I feel like the recording feels like this mark of, that we feel like we've been playing something enough that we're comfortable and know it in such a way that we're ready to kind of lay it down in a quite, permanent fashion and so the recording that um we have um that's being played today um is from a live performance that we gave this past november october october um at india university at a residency there um but i think by that point we had been touring the piece for six six seven months so it's been you know really really part of our repertoire and of our artistic work mm -hmm. So, so shall we take a listen? This is um, What If We're Beautiful by, written by uh, Daniel Thomas Davis, if I'm correct. So if we just take a listen to that and then we'll talk more about it. Thank you. 
So tell us about the piece itself, nuts and bolts. So uh, where does it uh, come from as in inspiration? Where did the uh, kind of structure of it evolve from? Um, now that we've listened to it, we can, we can have a little analysis of it. I'll start. Um, so Dan um, is a really good friend, one of my absolute favorite people, and I think one of like Hub's favorite composers to to work with. He's such this like generous, warm, ebullient, just lovely person. Dan is probably going to listen to this and like text me and tell me to like shut up. Um, <laughs> and he wrote this piece, "What If We're Beautiful," as um, I believe he describes it as an exercise in musical gift craft. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of sewing a scarf or hat or making some kind of gift or textile thing, he treats these five short movements as gifts to the various people whose initials are inscribed at the title of the movement. And so each movement, um, say a song for LH is an example, LH is a person um, who is in Dan's chosen queer family. And so each of these movements is a gift to a member of his own chosen family. And um, rather than kind of treating them as like, they're loosely portraitures, but not really, so not really pictures at an exhibition-esque um, kind of inspirations, but um, they're all short. I think the longest one is like four minutes or maybe four or five minutes. And they're just so creatively orchestrated and lyrical and beautiful and heartwarming and it's a piece that we just love to play and share yeah i mean i think it was for me that it was i, I don't mean this in a negative way it was very american and and i mean that in the sort of expansive american way you know like it it sort of felt big in a sense, much bigger than the pieces were, and 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 that was kind of I don't know if that was a feeling you were trying to get over or not, or the composer was, and you and your playing were trying to get over, but it, that's what it came over to me like it was, it was very outgoing, expansive sort of feel to it. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. I mean, I guess the the anthem movement is is quite um, gospel y in nature, which to me feels like a very American thing, but. Unrelated. So this is, um, do you ever watch like old, like the, like classic Spielberg movies, speaking of like American art, and there's this like certain, like when you watch like an old Spielberg film, there's like this certain sense of like optimism to it that I mm -hmm. associate with like art that we would brand as like capital A American. And I feel like if we're kind of thinking in that lines and in no way kind of like a nationalistic kind of way, but I do feel like Dan's piece also maybe bears that same feeling of optimism mm. that you have when you watch like E.T. Mm -hmm. when, when you said old, I actually thought- I guess they're not old, but- Which is more like old for me. So I was kind true. of, but but I think you're right. I mean, this is uh, um, in my mind. I had this image of 1950s American films or 1960s films, which were very, um, you know, kind of expansive and here's the world and this kind of thing. And 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 even if I'm I'm gonna, this is gonna go way out of out of out of where we're going with this. But but even in a way, it reminded me of something like uh, Dvorak's from the New World Symphony. I know it's a symphony; it's completely different, but it has that optimism of the new world, and and it kind of felt similar. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's gone. Cool. That's gone down. Yeah. No, it's it's a bit folksy. Um, yeah, Meg. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's the folksiness of of it like resonated with me. Sounds American. Um, Dan is a hurdy gurdyist, which is maybe not oh. the most American instrument of all time, but I feel like still so that jealous. kind of grown <laughs> thing that we hear, especially in the in the last movement. Um, it really, it's like a translation of hurdy gurdy in a um, in a very like you know fiddle kind of yeehaw, way. Yeah, <laughs> that that's that's I got that feeling. It did it did sound to me, and and again, maybe. Uh, not being American actually gave me more of that feeling of looking on the inside of it a little bit, looking from the outside into it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say uh, as a hurdy gurdy aside, I have asked for a hurdy gurdy for the last like seven Christmases. <laughs> and yet my partner has yet to get me a hurdy gurdy. And again, this year I have yet to get a hurdy gurdy. It's on my list. It's the top thing on my list. Anyway, Oh my gosh. For another um, day. We, we can go down the dirty gritty thing. Wait till next Christmas. Oh no. <laughs> it won't happen. He doesn't want it in the house. Because... <laughs> no, not at all. Um, do you, do you, maybe because Mike, you know uh, the composer so well, do you know the people who are attached to the movements as well? I feel like I've slowly been meeting them. So I, the second movement, and I always forget their initials for the number of times I played this piece and like looked at that cover page. Um, I met them at the, after the premiere and they're this lovely mm. couple and they're like the f most fun, wonderful, very engaging to talk to. And that movement, the second movement, the one that's inscribed for two sets of initials kind of has these like two kind of opposing um thematic things going and one is very sparkly and poppy and the other one is more like broad and expansive and kind of waxes on and it was them and it was crazy <laughs> like one of them was like very like giddy and, and bubbly and fun and the other one was just like a little bit more kind of spoken much longer sentences <laughs> and, um and was much more like poised and elegant and it was just so funny seeing the two of them um but Meg is like grinning, so I feel like I just have to like own up to it. The fourth one is me. <laughs> the flute one is me, um, which I'm always so like bashful about admitting. But I haven't met the other people who are not me and the um, couple who are the second movement. And do you think it does you justice? Do you think it's you? Um, it does. It does. It's really, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's, it was honestly one of the most, I, I teared a little bit when I got the score because I had no idea that he was doing that. Um, we have had this ongoing joke about the flute for as long as I've known Dan that in the Sam Adler orchestration mm -hmm. book, um, there's a line about the low register of the flute that says, um, I think it says weak, but luscious. Um, <laughs> And then so Dan um, alluded to that because it's more low Bs on the flute than I've ever had to play in my life. <laughs> um, there's a line where the, temp where the tempo marking is printed. It says, not weak, comma, luscious. And I really treasure that marking. It's my favorite tempo marking I've ever received. That is fantastic. I was just looking for my, my Sam Hadler because I'm teaching an orchestration class and it's somewhere on the floor. It's just like in a pile of things. I'm not going to have to go look up that, that line. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell my class. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where that, that's the story behind that. 
Yeah. So, so um, I mean, you, this was a piece you you uh, gave to us to to listen to, and and obviously it's about queer family, and and obviously we're the classical queer podcast, so you can see where this question's going here. Um, I mean, how much, um, how much is being part of the queer community affected you and your music, um, or or has it at all, or do you, how important a part of is it for you? Um, I'll start for this one. It's very formative for me. Like I, I think in kind of more literal ways and also broader ways in the sense that of like what being queer means and what queer family means, um, it has totally shaped like what I want to do with music and also like my influences and my musical community and the people that I am around and, and am inspired by and the mode in which they all make art and share it. And um, I think the emphasis on supporting one another in our work, um, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking about my Detroit queer community, like when I'm at home, it's, so central and it's so supportive and it's there's so much love and kind of this like undertone of like we're all doing this because it feels important and it's important to express ourselves and like you know the personal is political the the ways that we have joy together is political and it's just like kind of underpinning all of the goofy or profound or whatever art that that we make and share with one another um i something that's really important to me is the practice of improvisation and to me that totally feels related to queerness um i mean obviously there are so many kinds of improvisation but um the the act of like just claiming space and being creative and being yourself and being raw and and also the practice of listening to other people improvise is part of that too, like showing up for community and showing up for other people to also express themselves in that kind of raw way. I think that's, it's really linked with queerness to me. Um, and I feel really lucky that, you know, when I'm home, I get to engage in that community and like, there's a lot of great improvisation and great, other kinds of art that my people here do that I get to kind of like partake in and witness. But also when I'm on the road with Hub, it feels like, you know, like three of us are members of the queer community and we're not shy about it when we, you know, for example, when we perform Dan's piece, um, usually Mike is the one who talks about it and we tell the audience, you know, what it's about and that this is about queer joy and it just feels really important to to not just like perform queer art with hub but also to talk about it and acknowledge it and like bring it into whatever space we're in even if it's like somewhere that feels maybe it's like a little bit scary to do that um but we still do it anyways and that feels really important so um personally i feel like all the ways in which i make chamber music and and music with other people and also listen to it i feel like blessed both at home and on the road to that it feels always very linked with my queerness and my queer family 
Oh, beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting thinking about Hub's work um, more broadly and how it's connected to what, at least the word and the kind of message behind queerness and queer community is for me. Um, one thing I, one of the many things I love about Hub's work is that it is so focused on building various types of community, whether it's we come to a place and we're in residence somewhere and we get to be part of their community for a week, or we have a community of composers or collaborative artists or people we work with. And Hub is kind of always doing this kind of like generative outward kind of motion and this kind of inertia um, versus say a more traditional path, which is so kind of centrally focused on oneself. I'm going to win this competition. I'm going to win this job. I'm going to get this thing. And I mean, Hub, we have that, of course, we like get a gig um, or we, you know, win an award or something. But in, in our work, it it's always felt like it's had this kind of warm, radiating inertia. And I think that's what has kept me in this field and wanting to do this for, for the past 10 years. Um, and thinking more specifically about queer art, um, again, unrelated tangents. It's just, I'm still sort of in vacation brain and I just go off, on, go off on tangents. I was watching Tiny Desk recently or Tiny Desk concerts and I, because I love them. It's like my live stream. If anyone's listening, um, putting it out to the world, I want to play Tiny Desk. Um, <laughs> and I was watching that queer pop band Muna, who I'm obsessed with. I cannot get enough. And they got on and the lead singer is like the coolest person ever. I love her. And she gets and she's and she's talking about our work is is queer and it in this in this particular time period that we're in kind of alluding to what meg just said about the personal is political and you know our our joy is political what i love about dance piece and about how we kind of express ourselves in in public and, and at work is that what we do as an act of is is joy and it, and this is what kind of the lead singer of Muna on Tiny Desk was talking about is that it's so imperative as queer people to express our our politics our lives to to advocate for ourselves through joy and not through tragedy mm. um I, mean, I think we're in such an interesting time in the world of queer art right now where we're kind of breaking the trope of queer tragedy. I mean, with with film and music and TV, um, we've never ever seen as much queer representation and there's so much more to go, but I'm so inspired by that we have queer characters in film and TV and music and, and public art that are not just tragedies. They live happy lives, mm. they have happy stories, they 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 fall in love, they make music, they write love songs, they make music that's beautiful, they have an ending that doesn't end in like death and scandal and destruction. Because I think we had gotten so programmed into thinking that way through any kind of public facing media. And even like up in through my lifetime, I feel like um that show Shits Creek was like the first oh, time gosh. I had ever seen like a happy story and I feel like with Hub's work and our own queerness being able to project queer joy positivity not tragedy is is something that I'm really proud of and kind of again coming back to this idea of like radiating warmth and community building mm -hmm. and I feel like that is can be the cornerstone of our revolution and not one that's built on sadness. Well, I think what a, what a wonderful way to, to, to cap off on uh, 
a joyful revolution. <laughs> I love this, uh, like a joyful queer revolution. Um, thank you both so much for your thoughts and thank you so much for your music and thank you uh, for being here today and chatting with us. And I would really, really encourage everybody, uh, if you are remotely close to wherever Hub is playing, please go see them. Uh, you can find them online in several different places, but also uh, you have recordings. Uh, one just came out, correct? It did. It did. Um, Takami Ito's Wavelengths, it's a single. Mm, um, it's out fun. on our Bandcamp and all major streaming platforms. And we have another record coming out in June, um, which we're really, really excited about. Very well, soon. Yeah, and do keep in touch. Uh, we're always pleased to hear what you're doing. And, uh, you know, when you've got new stuff, come and let us know. And we'll, you know, gladly have you on again and talk more. It's been lovely. Thank you Thank so you. much. Likewise. Thank you. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane. <laughs>